Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. I was glad when they said unto me, uh, let us go into the house of the Lord. Next step. Are you glad this morning to be in God's house? If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, is this microphone on? If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn in there with me to the second chapter of John's Gospel, uh, to John chapter 2. For those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of John, uh, you know that John chapter 2 uh, contains the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. The great German scholar David Strauss once referred to that miracle, that overlooked, that insignificant, that mundane miracle as being the greatest miracle that Jesus ever committed. Jesus turning water into wine, Friedrich Strauss, David Friedrich Strauss referred to as the greatest miracle that Jesus ever committed. My goal this morning is not to convince you that it is, but my goal this morning is simply to convince you that this miracle is more significant than you have ever thought. Can you indulge me for a moment? I've been here enough visiting with you that you know that the tradition that I come from, whenever we read God's word in a public setting, to honor God's word, we read it standing up. So if you are able, can you rise to your feet as we read God's word? John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and continuing through verse 11. I'm reading out of the New International Version of God's holy word. Please feel free to follow in whatever version of God's word that you have on hand. My Bible reads this way. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. By the way, that's a good way to live life. Doing whatever Jesus tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn from the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He then revealed his glory, 
and his disciples put their faith in him. The word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me this morning? Uh, Father, we thank you for your word because your word contains great truths. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, we would be taught those great truths this morning. And Father, we pray that because we know that we will encounter you in your word, that nothing will distract us from this amazing encounter. Not even the shortcomings and the failings of your preacher who prays that you will speak through him this morning. And as always, Father God, because of this wonderful encounter that we are about to have, we pray that afterwards, you and you alone would be exalted because your word was clearly explained. And we pray this in the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus and all who are God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of our God. A third grade student once argued with his teacher that he could do what Jesus could do. And as proof, he was willing to conduct a science experiment that he called the Jesus experiment, one in which he would turn water into wine. He started out with a 20 ounce bottle of water, tasted it in front of the entire class to verify that it was indeed water, and then he poured the water into a glass. And as he was pouring, something astounding started happening. The water in the glass turned into a bright red, the color similar to a glass of Merlot. And not only did the color of the water change, the smell of the water changed. A, a familiar fragrance, at least to the teacher, started emitting from the glass the glass started smelling like wine. And then when the young man sipped from the glass, he claimed that the contents even tasted like wine. The class erupted with applause right before their eyes. This young man claimed that he had successfully done what Jesus did in John chapter two, that he had turned water into wine. The teacher suspected something different. So she tasted the wine and it tasted like water. The young man had merely found a way to pour red dye into the water so that it could look like wine. And, and he poured a fragrance around the classroom so that the class smelled like wine, but he had not turned water into wine. It simply read in a magician's book how to perform sleight of hand into fooling people to believe that water could be turned into wine. For his efforts that day, the teacher gave him two grades. For fooling the class, she gave him an A for failing to reproduce the miracle of Jesus, she gave him an F. He had managed to change the color of the thing, 
the smell of the thing, and maybe to a certain extent the taste of the thing, but he had not managed to transform the substance of the thing. The water in the glass was still the same water from the bottle. And even though there may be some magicians who by the same sleight of hand can perform the trick in a, in a more astounding way than this third grade student did, they still cannot reproduce what Jesus did in John chapter 2 because no one can. What Jesus did in John chapter 2 was a miracle of transformation. He changed one thing into something that is totally different. And the good news for all of us this morning is that Jesus is still doing the same thing today. But not with wine. He's doing it with people and with circumstances. The Jesus who transformed water into wine is the same Jesus who can transform any of your circumstances into something else. The Jesus who transformed water into wine is the same Jesus who is able to transform your life into something else. Jesus has transforming power. So he can change anything into something else. The focus of the first part of the book of John is seven of what John calls signs. Signs in the Bible are normal, but mostly supernatural events that demonstrate the truth of God's word spoken through a prophet and thus authenticates that prophet in John's gospel. These signs are markers that point to and authenticate the identity of Jesus, like road signs that help us navigate our course. These signs in the book of John lead us to the reality of who Jesus is. The first of these signs is recorded in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John sets the scene for us in the first few verses. In verse 1 of John chapter 2, we know that there's a wedding going on in a small village of Cana. Cana was a village located just 10 miles outside of the town where Jesus grew up, Nazareth. And one of his first followers, a man named Nathaniel, was from that town. And they are there attending a wedding. In the ancient world, Jewish weddings were, were these incredible celebrations filled with food, dancing, and wine. And these celebrations could last as long as a week. Jesus' mother, unnamed in this story, is also there, which may mean that Jesus is attending the wedding of a close family friend or, 
or it may even be that that someone Jesus is related to is getting married. But whatever the case, Jesus's presence there suggests that Jesus is there to have a good time. Jesus was not ashamed to party. John chapter two introduces us to a side of Jesus that many of us are unfamiliar with, the Jesus who liked to get lit. Yes, there are dimensions, uh, spiritual dimensions to the life of Jesus, but there is also a social dimension to the life of Jesus. And Jesus was there not just with his plus one, he is there with his plus 12. The entirety of his group of disciples is also there. And because Jesus is there, this perhaps explains why Mary, in verse 3, becomes aware of some privileged information that she shares with Jesus. She alerts Jesus to what would be an embarrassing event if it truly happened, that they have no more wine. It may have been at the last stage of the wedding, and either the groom could not afford to have more wine or or the guests who expect, or more guests than expected showed up. But, but whatever the case, there is no more wine. And Mary brings this to the attention of her son, Jesus. On the surface, a shortage of wine at a wedding is not bad news at all. And a shortage of the wine at a wedding is not a problem that many of us would bring to Jesus. It is not in the same category as a life-threatening illness, physical helplessness, being without food, blindness, or death. All issues that Jesus will later deal with in the Gospel of John. But the fact that Mary could bring Jesus the news tells us something about Jesus. You and I would have been tempted to leave Jesus out of this situation, believing that this is too trivial of a matter to bring to Jesus. But because Mary brought it to Jesus tells us that nothing in life is too trivial of a matter to bring to Jesus. You can bring Jesus anything. God is not just the God of the big things in our lives. God is also the God of the small things in our lives. The same God who is sovereign over the world is the same God who is sovereign over your smallest problems. And the things that don't matter to anyone else but you also matter to God you can trust God with the debilitating illness that you pray about. And you can trust God with that common cold that'll go away by itself in a week. You can trust God when your rent is two months late and you don't have anyone to turn to. And you can trust God when you need $2 to get on the train. <laughs> God is not just the God of the big things 
and life. And God is also the God of the small things in life. I had driven home one day late at night. And as usual, because I lived in Manhattan and I lived in Harlem, when I arrived home late, I couldn't find a parking spot. I searched for hours, circling the block at times, and at times just remaining put, hoping that I would find a parking spot, but to no avail. And you could imagine, the more I waited and the more I circled, the more frustrated I became. After two hours, and this is legitimate, in Manhattan in certain places, you can circle a block and wait for up to two hours and still not find a parking spot. After two hours, a friend of mine called and he could tell by the way I answered the phone that I was frustrated with my situation. He asked me what was wrong and I told him I'd been driving around waiting still for two hours and could not find a parking spot. And then he asked me something that, that I had not thought of, that, that I had not, it had not occurred to me. He asked me, did you pray about it? And I was like, why? Why bother God with the fact that I can't find a, a, a parking spot? I, I'm going to pray when I'm in the hospital and, and, and there's a potential that that something may be wrong with my body. That's, that's what you pray about. I, I'm going to pray when, when I'm in desperate need of some cash because I, I, I can't afford to pay my bills. That's what I'm going to pray about. I'm, I'm going to pray about the big things in life. I'm, I'm going to pray when, when someone's going into surgery. I'm, I'm going to pray when, when, when we need something desperately. I'm not going to pray about a parking spot but, but he convinced me to pray about a parking spot. This is what he said to me. John, if it matters to you, it also matters to God. So I, I prayed, Lord, help me to find a parking spot. Amen. And no sooner... Had I breathed the word amen, did I see somebody off in the distance pulling up out of their parking spot? I rushed over to it and pulled right in, and it was one of those big old parking spots. <laughs> this is not just a story of how prayer works. It's also a story of how you can bring God anything. What's trivial, but if it matters to God, to you, it also matters to God. Mary brings Jesus something that appears trivial to us, but it, because it matters to Mary and because it matters to someone, it mattered to Jesus. But at first glance, it seems that Jesus is disinterested in the problem. After being told the news of the shortage of wine, 
Jesus says to his mother in verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? Literally what Jesus is saying is, What is this to me and to you? The phrase, whenever it appears in scripture, is always an attempt by a person to distance himself from one person or from some situation. The phrase frequently appears in, in the gospel on the lips of demons addressing Jesus because they want nothing to do with Jesus. And, and David says this phrase frequently when he's trying to distance himself from someone he knows. Jesus seems to be saying in a respectful manner, but in an abrupt way, that he wants nothing to do with someone else's problem. The issue of someone running out of wine was not his business. And the reason he lays out is because his hour had not yet come. And Jesus was under specific time schedule given to him by his father. And Jesus refused to move unless his father told him. If that doesn't seem like the Jesus you know, someone who is disinterested in other people's problems, then you're right. Because Mary, though Jesus seems disinterested, ignores his words completely. Rather, she says to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. Jesus seems not to care, but Mary knows better. Because there's never been a point in the ministry of Jesus where Jesus has not shown compassion for people in need. Jesus always cares. There is no such thing as a disinterested Jesus. There seems to be a pattern in John's gospel where Jesus initially refuses a request for assistance only to later respond in a positive way. And later on in John chapter four, when Jesus is in Canaan again, an official will come to Jesus wanting Jesus to heal his son. At first, Jesus seems unconcerned and sends the man away. But before the man leaves, he tells the man that he will find his son alive and well. And in John chapter 11, Jesus receives news from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus was sick. But instead of leaving right away, Jesus waits three more days. Jesus seems unconcerned, almost as if he didn't care about Lazarus. And, and in the interval, you know what happened. Lazarus dies. But when Jesus showed up, he showed out. It wasn't a lack of concern. Jesus's delay was simply giving Lazarus the opportunity to die so a greater miracle could take place. Whatever the issue is, whether the problem is big or small, whether your challenge is life-threatening or not, Jesus cares too much about you and what you go through to be disinterested in your situation and let you handle life's problems by yourself. Jesus is never disinterested 
and what you go through. And Jesus is always concerned about your issues. It was a boxing match for the British heavyweight championship between Tony Wilson and Steve McCarthy. If you, if you remember those names, Google them tonight and, and, and watch a video of the fight. McCarthy was the more experienced fighter. And in fact, he was the better fighter. And early on, it became apparent that McCarthy was going to win. McCarthy easily won the first two rounds, but it was during the third round that his superiority began to shine through. McCartney knocked down Wilson, and for whatever Wilson reason, Wilson didn't stay down. Wilson continued to fight, and he was taking a beating. Watch the video. McCartney and Wilson had Wilson in the corner, hitting him and punching him time after time. The referee should have stopped the fight, but for whatever reason, the referee didn't. All through the fight, Wilson's mother was sitting in the front row, uninterested in what was happening to her son. Video shows her in the front row as her son is taking a beating, playing on her phone. She seemed to pay little attention to what was going on in the ring until her son got in serious trouble. As her son was in the corner taking a beating, this woman who was only supposed to be a spectator got up, up out of her seat, took her shoes off, <laughs> ran into the ring and started hitting McCarthy on the back of his head with her shoe until he stopped punching her son. And when they interviewed her later, she said, I just couldn't sit there and see my son go through that. Come here, next steps. Jesus is watching. And whatever you go through, he just can't sit there and watch you go through it by yourself. Jesus is never a disinterested spectator in what his people go through. And Mary is so sure that Jesus cares. She tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And Jesus gets involved. And Jesus points to containers, large empty containers that were used for water. Verse five sets the stage for the miracle to take place. Now remember the problem. The problem is that they are on the verge of running out of wine. They don't have wine. So Jesus, in order to solve the problem, instructs the servants to fill these large containers with water. But Jesus, the problem is that we don't have wine. I know. So fill the jars with water. Maybe it's just me who sees this. 
but the solution that Jesus proposes doesn't seem to answer the problem because we don't need water what do we need we need wine the instructions that Jesus gives to the servants in light of the problem that they're facing doesn't seem to make sense and this won't be the last time that Jesus tells people to obey instructions that don't seemingly address the issue that don't make sense and there are times in your life and in my life where Jesus gives us instructions that don't seem to address the issue that we're facing instructions that don't make sense to us Jesus I'm struggling financially I need a financial blessing to take place in my life and here's what Jesus tells us give and it shall be given Jesus you don't understand what I'm going through I don't have it to give I need you to give to me and Jesus tells us give Jesus I I'm having issues with the people in my job that they're talking about me spreading rumors about me lying on me I, I think even some of them hope that I lose my job and, and, and here's what Jesus tells us to do love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who mistreat you do unto others what you would have them do unto you wait Jesus you don't understand the answer doesn't seem to address the problem Jesus uh-uh I've been single for far too long in my life can, can, can you bless me with a godly man or woman so that we can build a life together and, and what does Jesus tell you wait on the Lord but Jesus, you, you, you don't understand. I'm tired of waiting. The solution does not seem to address the problem. But just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean the solution won't work. And the real reason why some of us struggle in our Christian faith and in our Christian life is not that following Jesus is hard. And, and I get it. It, it is difficult but the real reason why you and I struggle in our Christian faith is that the solutions that Jesus gives to us don't always make sense but just because the solution doesn't make sense doesn't mean that it should not be obeyed you just missed your shouting point right there let me say it again Just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean that it should not be obeyed because it's in the obedience that the miracle happens. It doesn't have to make sense to us for it to work. We just need to obey what Jesus tells us in 2 Kings chapter 5. 
we meet a wealthy man named Naaman who has a skin disorder that threatens not only his career but also his life. Luckily for him, he captures a woman who tells them about Israel's God and his prophet, a man named Elijah. Naaman travels to Israel and finds Elijah, and Elijah instructs Naaman to dip himself in the Jordan River seven times in Elijah's day. The Jordan River was like the Hudson River today, dirty and nasty. And Naaman couldn't understand how washing in the dirty water could make himself clean. So because God's instructions didn't make sense to him, Naaman refused to do it. But on his way past the Jordan, Naaman's servant said this, if the prophet had told you to do something great, you would have done it. Why don't you wash in the Jordan River? In other words, the servant said, you are not doing this not because it's hard, but you are refusing to do this because it doesn't make sense. Naaman listened and went down into the Jordan. He went down seven times. And you could imagine, after going down six times and nothing happened, that Naaman was wondering, why did I listen to this prophet who claimed to be serving God in the first place? But, but when he went down the seventh time, the Bible tells us he came up and his skin was as smooth as a baby. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Next steps. Don't be afraid to jump in dirty water when God tells you to do it, even when you don't understand why he's telling you to do it. God's instructions don't have to make sense to us for them to work. Our responsibility is not to understand what God says. Our responsibility is simply to obey what God says. The servants obeyed, and the miracle comes as a result of their obedience. The last part of the story is the verification of the miracle, where the master of the banquet attests the quality of the wine which he does in, in verse nine. There was a practice in the, ancient, in the ancient world where in weddings, the best wine would be served first and only after the guests were sufficiently inebriated, the lower quality wine was to be served. But the master of the banquet comments that the, what the bridegroom has done is the reverse. He has saved the highest quality wine for last. Unbeknownst to him, he is saying that the wine that Jesus, that Jesus turned that came from water was of such high quality that it surpassed the best wine that the bridegroom have to, had to offer, which was served first. The master of the banquet gives the bridegroom credit for something he knows nothing about. And there you have it. One of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever did. And here's why. This is what is unique about this miracle and why this miracle is so much greater than what it initially appears to be. And, 
and why it's so unlike many of the other miracles that Jesus did. And, and many of the other miracles that Jesus performed, Jesus was working with something that was already there. When he multiplied the, the loaves and the fishes, he already had fishes and loaves to work with. When he healed somebody, it was a miracle of restoration. Something was broken that he fixed. And even when he raised the dead, he was resuscitating. Life was already present in their body. Life was just lost. And Jesus returned that life which had been lost. He's, he's working with something that is already there. But, but with the water turned into wine, the ingredients for the wine are not in the water. And even if you allowed the water to sit there for days, for months, for years at a time, it would never turn into wine because the ingredients for the wine are not in the water. It proves that when we taste wine, it tastes nothing like water because the ingredients of the wine are not in the water. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make in this miracle. This wine turn, coming from water is symbolic of what Jesus can do in the lives of people. Because when, when Jesus is trying to transform a thing or a person, the ingredients of what Jesus is trying to transform us into does not have to be there. When we look at the people that God has used in scripture especially, what they eventually become is nothing like what we're introduced to them as because the ingredients for what they become are not present in them from the beginning. Come here, Moses. Moses eventually became a servant of God, a prophet of God, who spoke powerfully for the cause of God, who led people, who the Bible describes as the most humble man who ever lived. But when we meet Moses, he's arrogant. And by his own confession, he can't speak. He looks nothing like the Moses whom God will transform. The ingredients for the later Moses are not present in the Moses that we meet. Come here, Gideon. When we meet Gideon, he's such a coward that he's hiding from his enemies. But at the end of Gideon's life, he's a warrior who's leading other people into battle. The ingredients for the new Gideon is nothing like what we meet the old Gideon as. Come here, Peter. Peter, when we meet him, has foot and mouth disease. He says the wrong thing at the wrong time. He's not willing to serve God. He's especially not willing to die for the cause of God. Remember what Peter did? I don't know him. 
I don't know him. I don't know him. But then, after God transforms Peter, Peter is nothing like the man that we initially meet. The ingredients for what God is going to transform you into does not have to be there. And, 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 and I'll have to look in the Bible for examples. I, I, I'm looking at examples right now. Some of you were so far away from God that if you died 10 years ago, you would have split hell wide open. And if I told you that you would be in church on a Sunday morning praising God, you wouldn't believe me because the ingredients for what you are now was not present in you. But thank God. That the same God who transformed water into wine can also transform people. And you are an example. God has transformed you from one thing into something totally different. And now your responsibility is not simply to praise God for what he's done. Your responsibility is to join God in his transforming work. We live in a culture and in a world that is in desperate need of transformation. And when you look at that culture, and when you look at that world, you can't imagine that world will ever bow down and serve God. That this world, this culture, looks nothing like what it should be. But we know the ingredients for that thing does not have to be there. The ingredients for a transformed world does not have to be present in the world we live in. We simply need to entrust this world and this culture to the hands of God. And God, who is able to transform water into wine, the God who is able to transform what you used to be into what you are now, can also transform a corrupt world into a world that will honor and praise him. Would you join God in his transforming work? Let us pray.